0: Have you settled the score? Well, I don't know if we have, but we will be talking about the score on this episode. I'm Charlie.
1: And I'm Corey.
0: And this week, if you couldn't tell from the intro, we will be discussing uh, the score by the Fugees, 1996 hip-hop album, one of the biggest hip-hop albums ever, and uh, this won our poll, but it's a very special album for you, I know.
1: Yeah, this is this is one of the ones. Between this and Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, I bought them probably both like 30 times, just from overplay, scratched up CDs. I still rock this album to this day nonstop. One of my faves, one of my faves, listening to it critically. There's some pieces in it that might've just been elevated by me loving the album and loving Lauren Hill and loving what they did so much, uh, a critical eye says some different things about this album than i would normally say but that's the fun of listening to it uh like i said with a critical eye sitting back and and being somebody else listening to it so i can't wait to get down on this one settle the score if we must
0: (laughs) (laughs) well a lot of critics probably agree with your assessment anyway because this is a really highly regarded album but before we get into that some background so this was the fuji's second album. Their first album was a bomb. Not many people knew about it and it hasn't even gone gold. Not even after the success of this album did it sell a whole lot more, which is pretty crazy because often when artists did break through in the 90s their flop releases would usually sell a bit because of their later notoriety, but that didn't happen here. But- it was
1: it was very tough to find that album back then. I would always look for it after I, I found the score um, and it was just a tough one to find. I don't think I ever really listened to it all the way through until like the Napster days where I really got my hands on it. But yeah, it flopped. They only gave them $135,000 or no, they, they gave them a, a start of $135,000 to do the score. But whew, it was a awesome part on Columbia Roughhouse to be like, all right, give it another try. I mean, there's talent in these three, so let's go for it. But yeah, talk about a bomb.
0: Yeah, they were lucky they weren't dropped, but fortunately they weren't. And uh, they took a bit of a different approach for this album because they knew we need to make this count because we almost blew it. We need to do it differently. And they went back to their home base of New Jersey to record it at a location called the Booga Basement. and. it was an eclectic community that came through during the making of the album, uh, all kinds of people, and you hear some of those voices throughout the album, we'll talk about that a bit. The biggest factor behind the scenes of this is that two of the band's members were in a romantic affair during the recording of and promotion of the album, Wyclef Jean and Lauren Hill were together, and... Uh, This was complicated by the fact that Wyclef was also pursuing another woman who ended up being his wife. So uh, this was a really uh, sticky, intense situation, and there were definitely heightened emotions during the recording of this album. And uh, Wyclef Jean and his memoir Purpose, I read portions of it for research, but not the whole thing, he described this album as the soundtrack of their relationship, and he even compared it to a Shakespearean tragedy, which wow. I think is a bit extreme, but
1: yeah, why
0: clef an ego test too <laughs> uh,
1: Lauren Hill was uh quoted as saying. The album was an audio film, Uh, you know, it's her quote is, it's like how radio was back in the 1940s. It tells a story and there are cuts and breaks in the music. And this is quote unquote from her. It's almost like a hip hop version of Tommy, like what the who did for rock music, which is is wild. I never knew why Clef said that his interpretation was it was a uh, a summary of their stuff. But. There's some stuff in there that you know darn right well. She wrote about him and he wrote about her, uh, especially later on in the album. But now we're getting ahead.
0: (laughs) Yes. The album was recorded over the span of a few months from June to November of 1995. And it was released on February 13th, 1996. The critical acclaim was immediate. This got the coveted five-mic rating from The Source all-around raves, egg raves from major publications, and it really stood out because this was not the gangsta rap sound that was so popular at this time. This was a a more alternative hip-hop sound that gave a different message to people. That was embraced by critics, and it turned out consumers as well This album went to number one in the U.S. at the end of May of 1996 and stayed on the top of the charts for four weeks, and it was number five for the whole year. It has now gone seven times platinum in the U.S. and has sold over 22 million copies worldwide.
1: Yeah, it definitely said a different thing at that time. Inside of what was bubbling over, boiling over as East Coast, West Coast, It kept a little bit of a clearer head and gave everybody something to listen to that wasn't really sparked inside of that rivalry, which was great. And another reason why I think it was so highly regarded early on right away is because it was, in my opinion, a breath of fresh air from some of the the negativity, even though it touches on street life and different aspects of uh, of urban living it definitely was a fresh breath of air for me.
0: It was for a lot of people and a lot of non-hip hop listeners embraced this album. And I think there's no better proof of that than the fact that this was the second ever hip hop album to be nominated for album of the year at the Grammys. Yeah. And really the first legit one, because the first hip-hop album nominated was actually MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, and not something with a lot of street cred. The Fugees had street cred, so a more legitimate thing. It didn't win. It lost to Celine Dion's Falling Into You, which is a safer choice than this, but the fact that it was nominated at all is amazing at this point in time. And of course, it won Best Rap Album, and uh, The acclaim has only grown over the years. Most recently, it was ranked 134 on the 2020 edition of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. It was on the list in the previous editions, but in the 400 range. But with time, we saw the impact that this album had, so it got a significantly higher ranking this time around.
1: Yep it, it it hasn't. It has aged very well, in my opinion, um, with the critical eye, I go back to that critical eye on this. I thought for a second it might not age well, um, but there are some songs that could be released inside of things that are happening in the communities these days. And and you would be hard pressed or I think people would be hard pressed to tell you that it wasn't done in twenty twenty two.
0: And I mean, heck, these songs are sampled heavily to this day still. So I think that says something about the timeless quality of the score, I think. The fact that it's still being used for samples.
1: It's still being used for samples, of course. And you talked earlier uh, a little bit about reaching an audience outside of your normal hip-hop audience. And uh we talked about it a little bit before the podcast but and we'll definitely go into each of the uh of the samples throughout the album but this was produced with samples that spoke to a lot of music lovers subconscious whether they knew it or not there's stuff all over this album so i think that also had a little bit to play with Getting outside of the hip-hop community and also it being regarded so highly, especially by the Grammy uh, board.
0: That being said, I think I'm ready to dive into this one, are you?
1: I am. Let's get on in. Let's settle the score.
0: Yes, that is what we are going to do. The album starts off with the red intro, where it is stated that the score is a feature presentation by the Fuji. so... Like what Lauren Hill said, this is uh, somewhat of a film. Uh, they're going for that vibe, and uh, this is the intro where they, I guess, make their mission statement. I guess you could say
1: they—they they do indeed. Um, Rolling Stone writer Ann Powers uh, has a few quotes about it, but something she said really speaks to the red intro and and what they did throughout this album. From me, she says. Uh the score paints the the ghetto as a mythical landscape um that can inspire pride as well as sorrow. Like the Wu-Tang clan, the Fuji's view the world as their movie complete with stunts and special effects. And I love that. And I this red intro really lets everybody know, like you said, a perfect mission statement for this album.
0: Yeah, Ann Powers is a great writer and speaker on music in my opinion. She's fantastic. I've enjoyed a lot of her work.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed reading the little snippets that she had to say about this album as well.
0: That's really all I have to say about the intro. Now I'm ready to move on to first actual song, How Many mics?
1: How many mics do we rip on the daily? Many, money, say me, say many, many, many. Uh, a hook that will ring in my ears for years. Uh, what did you feel about this song, The the opener of the album?
0: I think it's a strong opener and I feel like this is the song that basically allows this group to show who they are as MCs and sets the stage perfectly. It's not the deepest song lyrically, but that's not the point. The point is, hey, we can rap and they do it really well here. And uh, I have to say, I think that each of the group members bring something unique and worthwhile to the table.
1: Agreed. Totally agreed.
0: However, just from this song, it's not hard to see why Lauren Hill was the breakout. She has the best verse here. And
1: uh, this... You, you already know. Best verse on... She, she takes a couple of these songs, but she opens this song with a multi-filled verse. Uh, we go back to that multi-syllabic... Um, way to do hip hop and she kills it right off the bat she definitely has the best verse in this but like you said that they really are screaming at the top of their lungs listen this is who we are even maybe even a call back to the way the last album flopped i think this was the only way to open this album because if you got a soft opener here people are like ah, here we go again with some more you know here and there fuji stuff but they didn't let you Even catch your breath after that intro she came in and just knocked you out
0: no and you were not going to want to turn this off after that and it was a smart decision and it was one lauren hill repeated with her solo album with lost ones that's another great rap opener but i think she learned that skill from how many mics you just gotta hit them in the gut with a great song that you're not gonna forget and uh, this was it
1: yeah She's a killer, man.
0: Yes. And, uh, yeah, it's not hard to see why she's the best.
1: (laughs) Heard that. Heard that.
0: At this time, at least.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's such a solid female performer. And then take the female out of it. She's just a solid performer, period.
0: Yeah, that's all there is to it. And uh, we get more of that showcase on the following song, Ready or Not. Now, the chorus is an interpolation of a song from the Delphonics of the same name, and this song contains a sample of a song called, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Boadicea by Enya, a New Age artist who is very successful, actually one of the most successful female artists of the 90s, you wouldn't automatically think that, but huge album sales worldwide, Enya. This is not something you ever thought you would have heard sampled on a hip-hop album. But here we are. This is the first time that we hear Lauren Hill sing on the album. And she came up with this chorus, according to Wyclef Jean in his book, on the spot. She heard him playing with his sampler. And she immediately had the chorus, ready or not, here I come. Mm-hmm. Immediately, she had that. And uh, in addition to that great hook, uh, her verse is, again, straight fire, as they would say. I especially love this line. This is my favorite line of the album. While you're imitating Al Capone, I'll be Nina Simone defecating on your microphone. And uh, perfect line. Perfect fucking line. (laughs) All I can say, because that sums it up. It's like, I'm not going to be violent like these street toughs that are out here rapping. I'm going to be a soul singer, but I'm also going to outdo you in a battle rap. That's the vibe she gives off, and I absolutely love it. And she basically is Nina Simone defecating on a microphone because she has that vocal quality and she can rap.
1: You don't know how happy it makes me to hear you pick that one out because it's one of my favorites of all time and probably a bunch of people but what a what a wild painting of a picture in that line um for me another one from this one that I've always gravitated to I enjoyed with white what Wyclef did on on this track, I really enjoyed it. And uh, you, you know, they even had the Nas "If I Ruled the World" tease in there, which was a Nas song that Lauren Hill featured on. Um, but the the line from Wyclef, "A born again hooligan, only to be king again," and it off it finishes off his verse is such a strong beast of a lyric. I always loved that one. So the band was split up during Ready or Not when they recorded it. And Lauren Hill, and I don't know if it was directly related to the Wyclef stuff, but I'm pretty sure this was when it was at its head. And she had called and said, look, I'll drop a reference for this. Um, but I'm, you know, don't make sure she, it wasn't named names like make sure nobody's in there, yada, yada. Came in, put down the reference and in tears, crying. And this this I I believe this came from Proswell, this story. When they got back together um, to finish this album, apparently she was like, Let me do that again. Because I was crying, I was emotional, and she stayed in the studio for five hours and then came out apparently with a bunch of bangers of of the same thing. And they were like, Sorry, we're gonna use the reference because it's so good. You know, that feeling was in there, and it speaks. Oh God, such a beautiful beast.
0: Yeah, Wycluff said in his memoir that the take they used was the one where she cried. So insane, man. Sadly, that seems to be a bit of a theme with Lauren Hill, sadly, where she cries during her take.
1: Heard that.
0: (laughs) But. This time it worked on MTV Unplugged 2.0, not so much. But here it worked great.
1: Not so much. It definitely worked here, and that's why they chose it. Such a full beaster. Was this the first single released from this album?
0: It was not. It has been stated that it was, but it was actually the third single. Oh, Wow. And uh, this is another example of an album having a huge impact, but the singles charts don't really reflect it, interestingly.
1: I I don't remember hearing this on the radio that much back then.
0: Yes. So in the U.S., this only charted at number 22 on the R&B and hip-hop airplay chart. Heard. And 34 on the rhythmic chart. So it was probably an airplay-only single, which a lot of songs were at this time, just to drive up album sales, and that worked really well for one song on this album that certainly allowed them to drive up album sales, but it didn't happen. But this was a beloved song, and it actually had one of the most expensive videos ever at the time, 1.3 million budget, which is pretty impressive for a Newish group. That's like a Michael Jackson budget, not a Fuji's budget, but they did it.
1: (laughs) Did you watch the video? No. It's crazy, dog. There's all types of stuff going on. Yeah, don't worry. You didn't miss a masterpiece by any means as far as videos go, but it was wild. I'll I'll never forget seeing it for the first time. It was a crazy, crazy video. You said 1.3 million was the budget on it? Yep. That's insanity. (laughs) But I believe it. I believe it.
0: But. This song was a number one hit in the UK. So this uh, really established this group as a worldwide phenomenon. This was an internationally successful album, which was also pretty new for hip hop at the time because it was a fairly new genre to many Americans. So for it to cross over across the ocean was a feat in and of itself.
1: And I'm going to beat this point into the ground, but this is really the first um time in my opinion that that subconscious sampling just really hits now don't get me wrong it's in the forefront but i mean if you know that delphonic song before you listen to this that song is a beast in itself period um but i don't care where you are if you heard another song mimicking it you're at least gonna stop and turn an ear to it and it's some of the genius producing on this album uh and not some of it's the the first example of the genius producing on this album, in my opinion,
0: yes, I completely agree. How many mics set the tone, but this is where we start getting into brilliance on the production prevalent throughout the album, and uh, yeah, ready or not, a classic. I actually found a reel that I reshared the Instagram. And one of the Washington Nationals, I didn't get his name, but this is his walkout song. Nice. Nice. That's and awesome. And he just said it was because he liked the song, which I thought, well, that's great. There you go. That's a there great intro. Who wouldn't want to walk out to Lauren Hill's voice?
1: <laughs> Heard that. Heard that. I'm with you on that one.
0: <laughs> yes, but, but I was getting ahead of myself. So now we are on to the next track. Zealots, which contains another crazy sample of a 50s song, I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos, which, first off, I think that's a really creative sample choice, again, out of the box for hip-hop. In its earlier days, hip-hop really reused a lot of the same samples over and over again. The Fugees really went outside the box with uh, this album, and I appreciate that, and, uh, this is not one of the hits on the album, but Y Clef Jean called this the most important song on the album in his book. He said, quote unquote, it's not the most pop friendly, but it lays out our philosophy.
1: That it's so crazy you say that because I always felt like this was a Y Clef song on the album. There's there's three on here that well, one's apparent, but this is one of three where I always had a feeling like I think Wyclef might have been on the forefront of, of this song as far as writing and, and uh arranging. I mean, this now we're on the third song of the album, and instead of banging in with another hardcore verse from Lauren Hill, which we will get in the song, she opens this song singing the intro to her verse, you know? So we get that beautiful voice and then she comes in and just murders it. And it really shows her adaptability and her adaptability that we'll see throughout her career um, after the Fuji's. But yeah, this is, this is our first like super take of her getting that songbird voice out there. And I always love that.
0: Yes, and I think this is also the first overt example of social commentary on the album. Definitely. It's a note to the zealots out there. And uh, there's some great irony in there. Like, I love that they're ironically asked to pray to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Wyclef Jean actually worked with his brother Sam on the song. And his brother was in law school at the time. So he had an academic sense that Wyclef Jean didn't. So that helped him with the lyrics of this song, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. And another thing I noticed was it. They really take some shots at traditionally white popular culture, like popular culture associated with white people. Like you hear shots taken at the Phantom of the Opera and Mr. Big. That's a super 90s reference. But I thought that was uh, unique and, uh, again, is kind of uh, this group uh, emphasizing uh, their blackness uh, because they're proud of it. They are not ashamed of it.
1: Most definitely.
0: They have no problem showing that off. And I think that's beautiful.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're all three of their roots in reggae um, really speak through and start to open up that candidness with, and I love the way you said that, with their blackness. Uh, and it was never, it was one of the first groups I remember inside of the mid 90s that wasn't afraid and almost was pretty pumped to do it now don't get me wrong people are going to be like what about public enemy what about this But i'm talking laid-back hip-hop with somebody singing that you know uh we we it was the first time that i remember really being like okay i hear you
0: i can definitely see where you're coming from because this is not as overt as stuff like public anime heard heard i mean. I'm not super familiar with their music, but just hearing Chuck D speak in documentaries before you can tell, he doesn't play around. He's very <laughs> intense with it. <laughs> and
1: trust, yeah, trust me, public enemy did not play around. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, come on, fight the power. Erd, come erd, erd. on. And yeah, this is not that. This is not NWA. Erd. They took a different approach and I don't think that's better exemplified anywhere than on the next song on the album, The Beast. So, this samples God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters, and this is specifically a song about oppression from the police. Because, in case you didn't know, people of color have not been treated well by our police system. And... I was reminded of this again recently. I'm sure some of you have seen the new show Dahmer on Netflix. That's super popular right now, and that's a show right there that showcases a case where many black men were failed by our police system because Jeffrey Dahmer sadly targeted primarily black and brown men, probably partially because he knew he'd be able to get away with it. But enough about that, we're not talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. You'll be hearing enough about him, but that's just an example of how people of color have been treated in our system, and this song is showcasing that, but this is not extreme. They're not saying, "Fuck the police
1: exactly exactly.
0: They're not going there, and it has this laid back reggae backbeat to totally different approach, but I actually think it might be more effective than something like. Fuck the police because it kind of stings a little more because you have this juxtaposition of this horrible situation and reality against this nice laid back beat that you could hear on vacation in Jamaica. And yeah. I think it's brilliant. And uh, yeah, I, I, basically, yeah. this song's brilliant in my opinion.
1: I think the point you just made is a great point. And in Clef's spoken word slash off rhythm verse, uh, which is one of my favorites of his on the album, in my opinion, it really captures the chaotic feelings of a heated police encounter, or what I would think that it would feel like what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've read in the very essence, just the chaos of his voice will grab you enough because you're, you're already listened to this chill reggae vibe almost um and it'll tell you a story that that'll leave you uh thinking and it, it it'll probably leave you searching out stories other stories about it i love this song i'm right with you man this is one of my favorite songs period
0: yes just a perfect song nothing wrong with it at all and as we said, there are interludes on this album. The best one <laughs> best follows ever. The best
1: Beast. Ever. Best interlude ever. I, I don't care. Even if I wasn't feeling like listening to The Beast, I would fast forward to Chinese restaurant or I would come like and rewind back from Fujilah, but Boy, let me tell you how many tears I've cried laughing to this interlude. One of my favorites. I uh I can't say enough good things. If you if if anyone is listening that has never heard this album, this is gonna sound terrible. But if you listen to one thing off this album, go to the end of the beast and listen to this comedy gold. And it's such a great palate cleanser, too, after we get such a really hardcore take. Because when if you're sitting down and listening to the story that that's told in the beast, I guess from at least for me it gave me feelings. Period. But then I got a chance to laugh, sit back, and and have a, a breath before we go on with the album. I always love this one. <laughs>
0: yes. And I agree, it is a great palate cleanser before the next song, which is quite a bit lighter after The Beast, probably necessary. Mostly. next song is the album's lead single, Fuji La. And this chorus is based off the song Ooh La 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 by Tina Marie, who, first off, I think is an underrated artist who's sadly no longer with us. And I'm glad that they referenced her here, because... Truly one of the R&B greats of the 80s uh, in my book. Heard and that. Not just mine for that matter, but still. And it also has a sample of Ramsey Lewis's If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want To Be Right. And like I said, this was the lead single it peaked at number 29 on the Hot 100. Uh, I feel like this is kind of a theme song for the group. It's easy to see why this was a single. It has that great hook based on a great chorus and that song was an R&B hit so they were going with a somewhat known formula there and uh, it's the natural law that the refugees bring that's <laughs> really that's real good way all to all I it can up. say about it that, that
1: is how you sum it up um, being that single that you heard everywhere or that was chanted back and forth from regular hip hop listeners to We go back to that. It it caught a different group of people, which was neat. But yeah, Fuji La, man, one of my favorite lines of all time. Stevie Wonder sees crack babies getting weak in the knees in their own families. What a beautiful picture painted in just two sentences or maybe one compound. But what a great one. Lauren Hill also does this little thing in the middle where she laughs, like a really high laugh, like, ha 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 ha, you shouldn't diss refugees. And I always thought that was so unique and so just something you don't hear. But it just spoke to her. In my opinion, she feels so natural, whether she's rapping or singing. And that's why I regard her as one of the top performers, period.
0: Oh, yeah. She switches between the two seamlessly, too, which is not something everybody can do. So the fact that she did that is impressive in and of itself. And uh, yeah, Fuji La. it's a great single. I don't think it's the best song on the album. Others would disagree, I'm sure, because it's so beloved. But overall, really fun, upbeat, lighter tune. And uh, try getting that hook out of your head.
1: I heard that. Try getting that hook out of your head is right. Also, before we move on to the next, we haven't touched on it much, but Proswell is not a weak performer in any sense but for me sometimes he falls a little bit flat especially when he's surrounded by Y clef jean and lauren hill this is one of the songs where i really enjoy what he does i don't ever really hate anything he does but proswell's verse in this always loved it
0: yes and uh, one thing i do want to say in doing research for this uh, pros often does get the short end of the stick and I'm not going to lie. He's not quite as distinct as Lauren Hill or Wyclef Jean. However, Praz was the one who started this group. He really was the visionary behind all of this. And he made a lot of production contributions that cannot be denied. You don't always hear it on the record. And he didn't have as much outside of the Fuji success as Lauren and Wyclef did. But He's still an essential part of this all. And truthfully, this is a group that is at its best when they're all together.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, what did he really have outside of this? He did.
0: Ghetto super stuff. I
1: was going to say, with my, with my man on dirt. I haven't looked it up, but I can only imagine. Proswell was on all types of stuff, and he probably produced a bunch of stuff, too. Not taking anything away from him. But as far as on this album, sometimes, like you said, he really does, he gets the short sticker almost overshadowed by these other performers.
0: Yeah, and admittedly, it's hard not to be. It's not that he's a bad rapper by any means, but I, I mean, Wyclef Jean has such a unique background that informs his stylings that it's impossible to discount him and Lauren Hill's just the beast. That's
1: yeah, so all yeah. I can
0: say about that.
1: It's really all you can do.
0: I wouldn't want to share a stage with Lauren Hill. I don't know who would have at this t- point in time. She'd I'd probably be late.
1: She'd probably be late getting to the show, though.
0: <laughs> she's <laughs> infamous for that. I don't know if you know that.
1: She's, oh yes, we're she in is. in her later years, but she's super infamous for that.
0: Oh yes, she is. Sorry, yeah. Lauren. <laughs> yeah, we're still at a good point for Lauren. Though. We are. She's we are. A- <laughs> In a good place here, fortunately. It's a shame she couldn't keep it up, but we're not there yet. So, now we're on to track number seven, Family Business. Uh, this features John Forte and Omega, and uh, this is definitely a Yclef song. I feel like this is uh, the one song on the album that really illustrates Wyclef's upbringing in Haiti, which was not easy, because uh, Haiti is historically a rough country to grow up in, not the easiest place to live, and it's one that he's been indebted to throughout his whole life, but this one really shows that desperation. You must defend the family if you want to survive. Uh, Just uh, chilling, and uh, yeah, this just really shows... the poverty background that this guy came from and that informs so much of what he's about and so much of what his message is and no song illustrates that background better than this one in my opinion
1: agreed really just looking at this again as a whole entire movie together we just came off which could be argued as the anthem of the fujis um, and the anthem of this movie, period. And then I always think about this song because it, it slows it down and, it, and makes it soft. Um, I always think about this as like a montage of all types of terrible stuff that's going on in the nighttime, you know, all, all the bad stuff, even when they go and start to talk a little bit about. Uh, Shaitan, who is in Muslim culture, it's almost like a gene or like a invisible devil type of thing, but literally the bad spirits, the bad universe, the bad juju at night. Uh, you got to protect the family from it. You got to, you got to keep on going with the family business. Uh, this one is, is one that back then didn't necessarily ruffle my feathers and get me listening like the rest of the album did, but. This one actually aged better for me uh, listening to it and really dissecting it with an outside look. I, I really got a new love for this song.
0: Yeah, so I wouldn't quite call this a highlight of the album. I do think there are stronger songs, even stronger songs with social commentary. I wouldn't put this up there with The Beast, for instance, but you still have to appreciate it. And it's still a strong song. And uh, you gotta love that outro, killing the sound boy with this sound.
1: Oh, I love it. And also, uh, you go back to Lauren Hill's depth and she does a little James Taylor right in the middle of it. You know, I see fire and I seen rain, which I love too. Uh, there's just things that, little levels that I always get from listening to this over and over again.
0: Oh yeah, this is definitely one to go back to. The whole album is, this is definitely something that needs repeated listens. To pick up on all its charms, I must say. Agreed. But, of course, uh, this next song, you don't need to have heard the whole album to know this one. Nope. One of the biggest hits of the 90s, uh, for the second time, actually, because it was a hit before, too. Yep, track number eight killing me softly. So, this song has a pretty wild backstory well before we get to the Fugees. uh, This song was written by Charles Gimble and Norman Fox, veteran songwriters, and uh, in fact, much of their best-known work comes from writing TV theme songs for shows like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, in the case of uh, Charles Gimble. The Love Boat, try getting that theme song out of your head. <laughs> and so, however, this gets messy, because the first woman who recorded this song, Lori Lieberman, claims that she wrote it with them, and that she was inspired by seeing Don McLean perform live when she wrote the song. And Gimble and Fox said, she said that it reminded her of that, but she had nothing to do with writing the song. And uh, this started the whole thing, which was pretty crazy, but song wasn't a hit at first. Lori Lieberman's version flopped. However, a singer named Roberta Flack heard it on an airplane and decided she liked it, redid the song a bit, and recorded it. She took it all the way to number one in 1973.
1: Did she end up giving Lieberman writing shout outs on that or anything or no? Flack just took it on her own.
0: Flack doesn't have writing credits on it. It's just Gimbal and Fox. Oh, really? They still, after all, I got
1: you. Okay. Wow. Yeah.
0: Man. Songwriting royalties are a weird subject we in and of themselves, but... Roberta Flack is not considered a writer on the song, and for that matter, neither are any of the Fugees or the group that they sampled. That makes sense. Even though they drastically redid it in 1995 when they recorded the album, they used a sample of a song called Bonita Applebum by a tribe called Quest who were often considered the predecessors of the Fugees, so it made sense for them to use that sample and it was proswell's idea to record the song but naturally this is a cover of a song by a female vocalist so lauren hill took over the duties for this one and the group wanted to change the lyrics to fit their message of anti poverty anti violence but gimble and fox didn't let them, but it really didn't matter because the Fujis made their biggest hit with this. This was the second single from the album, and it wasn't able to chart on the Hot 100 because of it being airplay only, but it made it up all the way to number two on the airplay charts, and very well could have been number one if it were able to chart. I do think that's very possible, and uh, many people prefer this to Roberta Flack's version.
1: Well, I mean, it's Lauren Hill's voice, you know? <laughs> you can't go up against it.
0: No, you can't. And uh, it's easy to forget now because this song is so well-known, and we've all heard it countless times, but the fact that they were able to take this well-known song, a pop song from over 20 years earlier, and make it a hip-hop song, but still retain enough of the flavor that it wasn't going to alienate the pop adult contemporary listener. This was a song that was going to appeal to a wide variety of people, and it did, and it's pretty amazing that a hip-hop group was able to do this and get away with it. And it's easy to forget that because we're all so familiar with this song. But at the time, I think what they did was pretty amazing with this. And uh, again, Lauryn Hill's vocal performance is one for the ages on this.
1: Amazing is exactly the word that I would use for many different facets of this song. This is another one where I was alluding to earlier of the genius of production in this song and the speaking to the subconscious of the music lover, because not only are we covering Killing Me Softly. But you've got the sample from Bonita Applebaum is from a band called Rotary Connection. It's, it, Memory Band is the name of the song, and it's very hard to find inside of the song, period. But on top of that, you got Fool Yourself by Little Feet in here. you got The Day Begins by the Moody Blues in here. So talk about amazing, amazing production, amazing thought process in, in pulling in the subconscious of, of the music lover. That Bonita Applebaum sample, and immediately for a music listener back then or especially a hip-hop listener you were like oh shit what did they just use tribe on this and other than one time two times you could literally scream out back then like bam 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 and the popularity of this song had now taken over usually you would scream it out and people would be like bonita apple bomb but now you would do it and everybody would just go into killing me softly, which, which is amazing and, and a true testament to what you were saying of. Man, you guys are covering a song and crushing it out as a hip-hop group right now. I always loved this song. I always loved this video. It was like a guilty pleasure video. Night at the movies, things go wrong, everybody gets crazy. And it was one that stayed on MTV for forever. And there used to be this other video service on cable boxes called the Jukebox back in the day, where you could call up and like pay so much through your phone. I mean, we're talking back in the day. Long story short, this was always on that. People never stopped getting this one on there, and I never stopped loving watching it either. I actually watched it today just for a good laugh. But what a great, great song! Amazing, amazing is the way to sum this one up.
0: Yep, that's really all you could say about "Killing Me Softly." This is a classic for a reason—a rightful classic. Oh yeah, yes, and certainly helped them sell a lot of albums for sure. Guaranteed. So the question is, how do we follow that up? Well, we do it with the album's title track, The Score. This song features Diamond D, and it features samples of every other song on the album, as Wyclef said in his book. And he said that he saw the album as a movie, this song as the soundtrack to it which is a cool way to look at it. My personal favorite part of it is the reference to Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time. (laughs) That's a great song, and I'll be hearing it live soon at my music festival because Cyndi Lauper will be there. I can't wait. But There you go. But here's the hot tea take. This is my least favorite song on the album. This is the one on the album I could do without. I feel like these points have already been made, And this just feels redundant to me. It does feel pieced together. This is not brilliant usage of sampling like the previous song. That song comes together as one, even with all those uh, disparate samples. This is not the case. This just kind of feels like a mishmash, and... uh, This is the one on the album. I'm just not feeling
1: 1996 Corey and really Corey until this critical listen would have said the same thing. Looking at it as a movie, I can see where the the remark of this is the soundtrack for the movie. Everybody gets an extra long verse, almost two verses each the length of their verses uh, compared to what we've heard from the album. You're right, they're touching on a lot of the same points and these almost same feelings as they go through uh, each verse. But I got to go out and say Lauryn Hill's verse at 2 minutes and 21 seconds is prob, in my opinion, now I won't use the word probably, in my opinion, it's the rawest that you hear her on this album. And I always enjoyed that. Um, this was never one that really stood with me, even though it was the title track. First listen, I'll say I didn't even realize the, the correlation uh, without looking at, at the track list back then. But yeah, not my favorite. So many samples in this one. I mean, Air, B, and Rakim, my melody. Planet Rock is almost, almost can't even hear it. It's so like drawn out and slowed down yeah i'm with you on that though this one is definitely not my favorite on the album
0: yeah so fortunately i think things pick back up with the next song the mask Uh, just based on the title i'm shocked this didn't make a comeback in 2020 i'm really shocked that it didn't but missed opportunity tiktokers (laughs)
1: Right. Right. Oh, you never know. Now we're going to spark a TikTok craze. This one, the mask has always been an artsy piece to me. It was another one back in the day that didn't really resonate with me that much. It was three little fun stories. The music was played mostly live, or at least I thought so back then. Um, but this one was always a little bit draggy for me. It seemed to me to keep just droning on and on. Not a terrible song. Again, I, I know we say that a bunch. It's not a terrible song, of course, but not where I think this album was going. And a little bit of a slow doldrum, if you must, in, in these last two tracks.
0: I'm going to disagree with all you. All right. All right. I like that this is an anecdotal track. I feel like we get to know our MCs a little better with these stories. and. Uh, Somehow it all works together as one song, and it's a message about how we all wear masks in society. And uh, I think this was a really unique way to put it. It's not cohesive, yet it is. And I really like what they did here. So I am a fan of The Mask. Is it the best song on the album? No. But do I enjoy it? Yes. They
1: say we always agree on everything. The nineties have proven that we don't agree on
0: everything. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no. Nineties are an interesting decade, that is for sure. Oh. I always like the oddest songs on these albums too, I feel like I don't always like the obvious hit on these nineties albums I've learned. But I like
1: I like that. I like that just means you're listening, you know?
0: <laughs> yes. And uh, Now we're going to move on to track 11, which wasn't a hit, but a beloved song in its own right. Cowboys. This sample's Something About Love by The Main Ingredient, and it features three rappers from a group called The Outsiders, Pace One, Young Z, and Rod Digger. And Wyclef wrote in his memoir that everybody was high as fuck while recording this one. They smoked a lot of the ganja. On this one. Uh, Rod
1: Digger was there. So there you go. That's real. Rod Digger probably brought pounds of funk and they got down. At least that's how I would like to think.
0: (laughs) Yes. Here's what I really like about this song this subverts that traditional white male image of the cowboy because that's the archetype of the American hero. You immediately think John Wayne, Gary Cooper, whoever that American hero. And this turns that on its head in the best way since Blazing Saddles, in my opinion. (laughs) Woo, I love that. Nice one, nice one. I mean, you don't think of hip-hop and cowboys. You think of country and cowboys. But no, there's nothing country about this. This doesn't have a country sample or anything. This is a straight-up hip-hop song. But they're using that traditional white male image and i love that they're doing that i love when we subvert the norm on these albums that's one of my favorite things to see i love any role switching up of it i just think that is awesome
1: yeah in a movie sense too where we are in the album towards the end it's almost like we're going towards a a sad ending because all these cowboys are out here shooting up each other and everybody wants to be a cowboy i love the point that you just made about subverting the uh, the traditional white male archetype. I think that's amazing. Another thing I think is amazing is Rod Diggas and Lauren Hill's double verse in the middle. I, I, oh, yeah, I did mark it down. One thirty five, one minute and thirty five seconds. That right there, those two together, you can almost your first listen. You might not be able to tell who is who. But if you really go back, <laughs> they're back and forth killing it. Um, always love the little Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold them tease in there. And it's a great one. It it is definitely a. It's not a very happy, upbeat song, especially this close to the end of our quote unquote movie. Um, but it's a great, great song.
0: Yes, but I lied. I forgot about the gambler part. There is a country reference in the song, but once again, they're flipping it on its head, and that I love.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's even sung in like this very bass voice, and it, it doesn't... I mean... You know it's that because of everybody knows that song, but it's definitely not like a legit shout-out to the song. You know?
0: No. I mean, Proz certainly sampled Kenny Rogers when he did Ghetto Superstar, so... True,
1: true, true that. Oh, look at that, man. That's a great point. That yeah, indeed. I wonder if he was the one... Because he's got that low voice like that. I, I'm going to have to look back. I wonder if he's the one that's singing that.
0: <laughs> Who knows? But speaking of sad songs... We're on to another one, and it's another cover. It is a Bob Marley cover, No Woman, No Cry. And this was the fourth single on the album, actually. It made it up to 38 on the airplay charts. And uh, this is unlike anything else on the album. This is the most straight-up reggae song here. And Wyclef Jean detuned his electric guitar to make it sound acoustic, and... You could have fooled me.
1: Shit, you fooled me to this day. I never (laughs) knew that.
0: Yeah, he wrote that in his memoir. So, yeah, Wyclef is definitely an egotist. You can see that throughout the memoir, but he has a lot of great tidbits about the making of this album that I really appreciated learning. Uh,
1: That's awesome. You want to get a hot tea take? Yeah. I was never a fan of this cover. Even back then. I thought it was cool. Don't get me wrong, but... yeah. It's a dime a dozen cover of No Woman No Cry. They give their, uh, in my opinion, they give their own switch on it. And I like the added verses and the play with words. But for me, I might have listened to this one a handful of times back in the day where I listened to the rest of them a million. Uh, Just never was my favorite. Sorry, (laughs) Wyclef.
0: I can see why you would say that. And uh... I don't even think it's the best acoustic-type song on the album, actually. I mean, you're right. It's a well-done cover, I'll give it that, but it doesn't go to another level like Killing Me Softly did. Not at all. They didn't do that with it. It's a nice cover. I do feel Wyclef sang with his heart when he did it, so still like listening to it.
1: I'll agree there, and I gotta believe that it was... Not so much fan service as something that he wanted to do with his heart, like you said. And It's not like it's it's crappy, but it was just like, eh. I mean, especially the way this album is going, you know?
0: Yeah. There's much stronger moments on here that are more representative of who this group are, but I think this is a nicely done song. It's not one of the best here, but I'm fine with it. I've got nothing against it, so... There we have No Woman, No Cry. And uh, in a way, you would think the album would end there, but it didn't. Now we've got Manifest. And uh, this one really is more so about injustice. It's more upbeat than the last song, but it's also more aggressive in its approach slightly. We're going back to the Beast vibes, kind of. Not quite as effectively, in my opinion. But... The interesting story Wyclef had about this song was that his verse told his version of the biblical story where Judas betrayed Christ for the gold,
1: and he screams it,
0: or not
1: screams it, but he—it's it, really powerful, and I—I I always enjoyed listening to him do it, and it opens the the narrative of this song. Um, but yeah, he's he's doing his Wyclef high timbre scream speak. And it's powerful.
0: But once again, the MVP of this song is Lauren Hill. Her verse makes the song for me.
1: You already know it. In my opinion, her verse in this is a little clip or maybe an early look at what we would see make itself the beautiful song of that thing on miseducation i really get a lot of that thing vibes from what she says inside of this album uh i'm sorry inside of this song about love about betrayal we're still on that betrayal and we saw the judas betrayal of jesus christ in wyclef's verse and now we're on to the betrayal of the heart in Lauren Hill's verse, and what a fucking verse. You're totally right, man. MVP of this song. Kill it. Yeah,
0: I'll say it. It's She has a lot of great moments here. This is her best verse on the album. It just hits you in the heart, and uh, that's what she did so well in her prime.
1: Agreed.
0: And uh, this song samples Rock This Funky Joint by the Poor Righteous Teachers, which I think is a great group name. <laughs> and, uh... It ends the album. Then we have the end credit outro once again going with that movie montage. And uh, we listen to a feature presentation by the Fugees.
1: Hell yeah, man. What an album.
0: Yeah, but if you bought the CD and now on streaming, you got four bonus tracks. And three of them were remixes of Fuji Law. And they're all different in their own right, but I don't feel like we need to talk about each one of them individually, do you?
1: No, I mean, basically there was a, a chill one, in my opinion. The first one was chill. The second one was this... It was a really neat take of, like, a Jamaican dance hall sort of version of it. And, yeah. and I enjoyed... Each one had different verses in it, too, which... The, the amount of writing that went into all those remixes for the verses blows my mind and always has. The world remix, which was the final track on the CD, uh, final bonus, was my least favorite out of all three remixes. I felt like it did a lot of what the other two did before, but they just focused on like world destinations almost. But yeah, that's it. You just got yeah. them and then the Clef track.
0: Well, before that, there is one thing of note, that Sly and Robbie dance hall, Max. Yeah. At the end of it, there's an MCV here named Akon, who, a decade after this album, would be dominating the pop charts. No shit Akon's on that? Yeah, it's that Akon, apparently. Okay, heard that. <laughs> I mean... Uh- he went in quite a different direction. I don't think he was really making a grand social statement when he told us to smack that all on the floor, but... <laughs> I heard. That's wild. I would never knew that. But I guess we all start somewhere.
1: <laughs> you got it. The community but... is giant but small at the same time.
0: Yeah, but real thought, though, who would have thought that 10 years after this album, Akon would be making more hits than Lauren Hill? A, a That's travesty, crazy to think about. Yeah,
1: it definitely is.
0: Oh, uh, it is. I mean, Akon's fun for nostalgia purposes for me, but come on, it's come on, it's not I'd, brilliant.
1: I'd love to see Lauren Hill make an, an album. I think it's a really cool time for Lauren Hill to make an album, but who knows where she is in her own mental state or. Just in her being right now. Who knows where life has taken her at this point? Yeah,
0: well, what I do know is she did a guest verse on a Nas song recently that was really well-received, actually. So, hopefully that's a sign of things to come. I think uh, we need Lauren Hill back. Because, uh, I mean, Nicki Minaj is still making hits. That's a problem. We need Lauren Hill back. I heard that. That's all I got to say about that. But... Enough about Lauren for now. We do have that bonus track to discuss. And it's a Wyclef acoustic song. It's called Mista Mista. And it's based on a true story. This was an actual encounter Wyclef had with a homeless man asking him for money. And Wyclef said, no, because all you're going to do is smoke crack. And... He went back and wrote the song, and uh, it was after a night out, so he was drunk when he recorded this, uh, which you can kind of tell. But it's still a powerful vocal; it's still so good. It, it I is. love just how intimate and small it is, and it's just a very real story to me. I would say
1: that's cool. I never knew he did it drunk, but you're right; you can you can tell there's something there's something going on there. Maybe why he got so much power behind it. It is a powerful narrative it's a cool little one at the end but again not one that i really paid attention to back then but i found a new love for it on this listen
0: yes i do like it a lot but it doesn't fit in with the rest of the album at all that's why it was a bonus track but it's one of the best bonus tracks i've heard i'll definitely take this over endless nameless or whoops now from heard previous that. albums we discussed i heard
1: that oh man that says a lot too but yeah you're right if this was the only hidden track on the joint it would it would have been just fine too <laughs> yeah
0: much better than other ones i uh, did enjoy it still and uh it's a part of the album even though it was a bonus track we still have to discuss mista mista and now, with that being said, I have a question for you, Mr. Mister. What up? What is your grade for the album?
1: This was one of the easiest A's I've ever given an album that we've talked about. And that's with nostalgia out of it. You still to this day hear artists, the likes of Bono, the likes of Kanye, the likes of all over the board, all the way, all over the board that have been inspired by this album. And the reason why is because it is so beautifully produced and beautifully performed. It almost feels like they didn't even have to try the way this album is is given to us. It's timeless, in in my opinion, and it, it is just that jam. And again, if anybody hasn't heard it that's listening today, please take time, sit back, get a nice drink, put your headphones on, and, and enjoy the score.
0: I. I'm going to give the album an A as well. Woo! All right, all right, we're back on, we're back on track. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite expecting it to be an A. I'm really not a hip hop person, but there was only one song on the album I didn't care for, and uh, the highs of the album easily outweigh it for me. I just cannot deny the song craft present throughout the whole album is brilliant and uh, it's not hard to see why this album took off the way it did at all. This is a great piece of work and uh, I am with the consensus on it. I am a fan of the score.
1: I think you're selling yourself short now. I think you need, like, two more punches on your hip-hop card, and you are a guaranteed hip-hop listener at this point.
0: <laughs> well, a certain kind of hip-hop, at least.
1: <laughs> I don't know, man. We'll put a couple more punches on there. Next thing you know, you would be going to Wu-Tang with me.
0: <laughs> i go to them before Nicki Minaj, that's for
1: sure. <laughs> I, I don't see myself seeing Nicki Minaj either, so we're good. <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite track on this bad boy?
0: The Beast.
1: Yeah, nice. Good track. Good pick. Good pick.
0: It's just a brilliant song. And uh, they tackled a real subject that's still relevant today. We just saw it tackled in this Netflix show. And uh, we've seen it in our society in the news. And uh, I think it's the best uh, takedown of police brutality I've heard in music.
1: That's That's a great... Great point. Uh, that That is definitely the song that I was alluding to being able to be dropped now. And I think people would be hard pressed to tell you that it wasn't made this year. What a great pick. Awesome. Awesome. What's yours? How many mics is my jam of all jams? So that's a nostalgia piece. I, you know, there's so many great, great, amazing uh, songs on this album. But how many mics gets me going no matter what? um it's always been my jam lauren hill comes straight in with those again those multi uh syllabic rhymes and it, it, it's just a beauty for me i love that song always will
0: all right there we have it how many mics do we drop on the daily i guess we drop five mics for the score
1: many oh now we're sourcing it look at us now we're sourcing it it's a it's a bona fide turntables and tea classic that's what we got to start doing. You know, we might just have to switch it up. We'll, we'll find a unique icon to us. How many? How many cups of tea are we giving it? I mean, we're just working. We're just brainstorming. But that would be cool.
0: <laughs> Something to think about to yeah, be determined yeah. if we do it. But I'm leaning towards yes.
1: TBD. Oh yeah, we got to
0: start thinking about that. <laughs> leaning towards yes. But this is the end of our nineties month. What a month. We really went all over the place. We
1: made it. We made it. Oh man. We are stronger for the nineties. <laughs> that was that was a great month. I had a I had a bunch of fun. That was that was a super cool month.
0: Yeah. And I think we saw some of the best of it, some of the worst of it. We, we, we disagree did. on what some of the best and the worst are, but that's what makes this fun.
1: It most definitely does. The nineties were uh, we're divisive even to us, even to the power of turntables and tea. So, yeah, man, it was a blast.
0: <laughs> yes, but now we'll be moving on to the 2000s next month. Let's see if they're as divisive, because uh, yeah. another wide-ranging decade. Uh... I was
1: going to say, we're talking about all over the board. I can only imagine the stuff that we'll tackle throughout the 2000s. What's our first album in 2000?
0: It's Britney, bitch. We'll be discussing We will be discussing Britney Spears' 2007 album, Blackout. I know we've heard a lot about Britney Spears in the media forever, including to this day, but I want to shed a light on the artist that lies underneath all of the tabloid and social media coverage. I'm ready to do it. I cannot wait. It's one of my favorites of all time. I'm going to say that right now, and oh, I can't wait for Blackout. (laughs) This is going to be a fun one, and uh, I'm curious for you to hear it this is an interesting album and uh, a bit different than you would expect from Britney Spears if you just know her hits. I'll say okay. that
1: okay me and Britney go way back but I, I don't have any deep dives on Britney so uh so yeah I'm excited let's go Britney yes. bitch let's go all right all right
0: yes and uh in the meantime you know the drill subscribe wherever you're listening to us leave us a nice rating and review follow us on facebook and instagram at turntables and tea podcast and until then we hope that you can settle your own score peace